welcome to Sundays at Coastal. The book of Isaiah opens up with Israel in full rebellion and the Lord revealing a vision of his glory to Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is how God is described, and the stain of Isaiah's sins immediately overwhelms him. Rather than shrink back in shame, an angel rushes to Isaiah and touches his lips with a lump of burning coal. God removes Isaiah's guilt, revealing God's plan to redeem this fallen world. Hopefully, hopefully. So, uh, Paul, what time is it? Six, six o'clock is Coastal Quarter? So 6 p.m. this Tuesday, and we're going to meet across the street uh, under the big... No, sorry, we're going to meet here. That's where youth group is. That's where youth group is. Youth group's happening across the street. Coastal Core will happen here. We'll meet and eat in the fellowship hall, and then are here. Well, if you are new or visiting with us this morning, welcome. I hope that you guys feel so warmly welcome this morning. And I know it's not easy to come to a new church, or if you're checking us out online, welcome. So glad you guys are here. Uh, let me introduce you to who we are. We do this every week as a church, uh, but it's so important for us. Number one, we believe that there is always hope beyond our brokenness, always. Uh, all of us come from a story of, of being hurt or wounded. Um, and some of us have incredible wild success in our life, and then it's only 30 years later that we realize the aftermath of our choices. Uh, <laughs> Can someone say amen reluctantly? Yeah, yeah. Uh, There is always, always hope beyond whatever form of brokenness you're experiencing in your life. And so God has a plan to heal and restore and renew and resurrect you. And that's what we do at this church. We also see in the story of Scripture that we are called to learn how to trust. Um, If you're looking for a church to perform in, this ain't it. Uh, we value honesty and vulnerability here because that's the way into our hearts. And to trust God is, is to lay our whole lives before him and say, God, you, you are holy. You are better than I think. You are stronger than I think. You are more worthy of my obedience and my allegiance and my love than I think. You are holy. You are good, God. And so we learn together how to trust God. And that's what these on-ramps are for our church, whether it's small groups or Coastal core or Alpha, if you're new to faith or you want to grow in your faith, or whether it was helping 75 families last Friday in Guadalupe with Dia de los Niños. Absolutely incredible. We're doing things uh, here together that would help us trust God as, as a family of God. Amen? And then lastly, we bring restoration. And we bring restoration right where we are. We don't have to wait until we're perfect. Any, anybody, anybody there yet? You know, what is that? I, I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. Yeah. Uh, so super important. Like, we bring restoration right where we are to our families, to our community, to our nation, to our world. And that means that we're building wells for people in Africa who don't have clean drinking water. And we've sent $7,500 so far to the, um, to the seminary in Odessa, Ukraine, that is now converted into a refugee camp. Right? So cool. We got, a, we got a thank you card from the bishop there who's just like, you would not believe how much of a difference you all are making. So one little, our, our little church... Our little church has paved the way for hundreds of people to be fed in, in Odessa, Ukraine. Isn't that incredible? Uh, and then right here, what does it look like for us to love 
uh, a different species of human beings. They're called junior hires and high schoolers. And <laughs> what does it look like for us to, to care for people in our church that are struggling or people in our community that are struggling? Uh, you're gonna hear next week about how your change for a dollar gift uh, helped a mother with cancer. Uh, so uh, it's just incredible what God is doing. So that's what we believe as a church, and I am so glad that you're here with us this morning. Each one of those beliefs that there is hope beyond our brokenness, that we are called to trust in our risen Savior and bring restoration to this community has a choice that we have to make every single day as followers of Jesus. You don't stumble into discipleship. You have to actually choose to follow Jesus. So can we make these choices once again as the body of Christ? We, read this with me. We are disciples who walk intentionally with God. Therefore, I choose to be changed by Jesus. I choose to seek Jesus first, and I choose to join Jesus in his resurrection work. So would you pray with me? Would that be okay? Would you pray with me? Holy, holy, holy are you, God. You are far beyond, far bigger than we can ever grasp or imagine. Your love is so much more immense than we could ever comprehend. Only by you, Holy Spirit, do we have a chance to know and taste and feel and experience the depth and riches and wonder of you, God. So Holy Spirit, come. Awaken our hearts right now. Awaken our minds right now. We bind up everything opposed to Christ for those who are online and for those who are here. They would be seeking to distract or interfere with this time in the name of Jesus. Leave us and the places we are in, this sanctuary, now in Jesus' name, and go to Jesus to be judged. And we offer our hearts to you, Lord. We pray a dangerous prayer. May your kingdom come and your will be done in our hearts today. Change our thinking, our believing, our living, our choices. We say yes to you today, Jesus. And all God's people said? Amen. We've gotten uh, into a weird space as a culture, and it's happened over the last own 65, 70 years in American life. Um, and that's just a couple of generations. It's not much time, but it's important that we understand the water in which we swim in. Yeah? Uh, and the water in which we swim in is this, is that we, we have a sense that, um, that we have our life, right? And then we're going to fit things into our life. Yes? Right? So you got to fit work in there. You got to fit kids in there. You got to fit your vacation in there. You got to fit your desires in there. You got to fit your, your TV shows in there. Your projects in there. Right? Your grandkids in there. You got to fit God in there. Right? So, all these things in your life are competing for time, and you have to prioritize what you're going to do. We're starting the book of Isaiah. And in the words of Eugene Peterson, the, the God of whom the prophets speak is far too large to fit into our lives. If we want anything to do with God, we have to fit into his life. 
Prophets are not reasonable. They're not like, hey, if this sounds good to you. They're not diplomatic. They don't tactfully negotiate with you. They don't say, oh, I want to hear your opinion. No. They have incredible, profound experiences with the living, breathing God of the universe. And in his presence, they realize their correct size. And then they communicate that to you. And they say, this is a non-negotiable reality. They plunge us into mystery that's immense and staggering. And, and the thing that we Americans do is we say, well, if I understand it, then I'll do it. And that's not how God works. The prophets say, no, 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 do this and then you'll understand. Does that make sense? That's faith. Do this, then you'll understand. So Isaiah the prophet is... He's absolutely shaken to the core with his need for God. He's going to be the prophet in Israel over four presidential or kingly administrations. And what we're going to read today in Isaiah 1 and then Isaiah 6 is what happens during the first administration. By the fourth administration, the Canadians have invaded. Right? If Israel is California, I shouldn't say the Canadians, the Oregonians and the Washingtonians, right? <laughs> Those are called the Assyrians, right? Those jerks, and the people from Idaho, too, because Assyria goes a little bit east of, of Israel. So imagine if Washington, Idaho, and Oregonians, right, all decided to invade Northern California, right? And they took over all of Northern California all the way to Santa Barbara, okay? That's what would happen. That's what happened in the last administration under Hezekiah. Okay? We're not there yet. We're four administrations before that today in Isaiah's history. King David was around 500 BC. Okay? Sorry, 1000 BC. King David was under 1000 BC. This is about 200, 200 or so years later, about 700, 720 BC. That's when Isaiah starts writing. Does that make sense? So Israel is established, there's a temple, there's Jerusalem is big, it's thriving. All these things are happening in Israel's history and, and immense wealth and incredible things are happening. And then Israel's kings are, it's like a, one's okay and three are horrible and one's pretty good and seven are terrible and, right? Does that sound familiar at all, right? It's just sort of, that's where we are, Right. Now, and you need to know something about the king of Israel. The king of Israel had Moses' job, and Moses' job was to lead the people to understand who God is and to worship God. Does that make sense? So the prophet's job was another part of what Moses looked like, which was to speak the truth to, to, to the nation and also individuals in power and say, come back home. And lay your life down before the king of kings who loves you and adores you. That's the prophet's job. So this prophet's job, much like um, the idea of what the media was supposed to be like, was, was to tell you the truth. Okay? Now some prophets 
didn't tell the truth. <gasps> Fake news. <laughs> and you know what happened to them? They died. They just people killed them. Yeah? That would be an interesting motivational tool for today's media, right? If you get these facts wrong, right? Uh, So Isaiah lived in the time when Israel's politicians and leaders had excluded God from their lives and also the national conversation. Kings and administrators had consumed Israel's wealth for more of their own benefit and then left the people behind. And And the nation was no longer rooted in their worship and trust in God. This is a nation that had been established. There was, they showed up with shovels and, and, and hoes and gardening tools right and and that was their that was their weapons for war and god literally won battle after battle after battle for them that's how the nation was established by trusting god and now they've said we don't need to do that anymore so what have god's children done well let's read isaiah 1 chapter 1 chapter 1 verse 1 together are you ready here it is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Judah is the southern kingdom. That's Santa Barbara all the way to San Diego. Israel is, or Jerusalem, or, uh, uh, so, so that's the, the, the southern kingdom, okay? Confusingly, the northern kingdom is called Israel, which is from Santa Barbara all the way to Wairica, okay? So the vision concerning Judah, so this is the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So think to yourself, bad, 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 good, okay? (laughs) The kings of Judah, okay? Does that make sense? So what's the next thing that God is going to tell Israel's people? Are you ready? Here it is. Now, we know from history that they won't listen to a word, but, and that's tragic, but let's hear anyways. Maybe we can listen. Ready? Verse 2. Ready? Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. So God is speaking. Listen, you heavens. That's all the spiritual powers and principalities. Listen, earth. That's everybody and us. Pay attention now. Open ears. Are you ready? Let's read loudly. For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Oh, snap. Here we go. You're not going to like this analogy. And by the way, turn to your neighbor and say this applies to you. (laughs) Verse 3. Here we go. Are you ready? The ox knows its master. Wait, wait, wait. Not manager. Manger. But, but yes, the donkey doesn't know the manager either, right? Let's try verse 3 again. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ooh. Let's just break this down so we can understand. First, our God is our Father. We are His children. God has been intimately involved in raising his children. God is not an absentee parent. He saved them and you. He's formed you and I. He's listened to us. He's forgiving us. He's involved in every detail of our life. And what have we done? 
We've rebelled. What is rebellion? Let me give you a definition. Rebellion is when we refuse to obey because we believe the person in power is in charge. Wait, wait, that's a typo. The person in power or in charge is immoral and unjust. That's why rebellion happens. Does that make sense? Let that sink in for a moment. God literally has saved his people out of Egyptian slavery, parted the Red Sea, miracle upon miracle, all of Mount Sinai is up in clouds and flames and rock concert. The Ten Commandments are given. God reveals himself to his entire people. Everybody's blown away. Leads them through 40 years of personal transformation, uh, wandering in the wilderness so that they stop becoming a human doing and start becoming a human being, then gives them a whole country that's uh, the vineyards and the orchards and the cities and the towns and the houses are already built, right? And, And God gives them that entire country, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is what God does to a bunch of former slaves. Somebody say Amen. Right? Not to mention what God has done with you. Right? Anybody, anybody fully getting what they deserve in life? No. Thank God. We are a people formed by his mercy and his love and his grace. And what do we and them conclude about God? Uh, he's meanie. They don't care. You know, this one bad thing happened in my life, so I'm entitled to every good thing happening to me all the time, so God must not care about me. He won't provide for me. He's not really there for me. At the heart of all your disobedience and fear and desire to control is your misunderstanding of who God is and therefore who you are. We think our rebellion against God is justified, and then we assume the consequences of our rebellion will work out in our favor. Let me tell you, this does not work out in your life. Let me tell you, this does not work out in my life. I'm suffering the consequences of my decisions that I've made for 20 plus years Right now, the heartache that you'll go through in your marriage, the heartache that you'll go through with your children and your grandchildren, the difficulties that you will face later on, decades down in your life, will be because of the consistent choices that you've made in your life to be disobedient. And at the heart of that disobedience is this deep lie that God is not enough for you, that God does not love you or won't provide for you. Can we just say that's a lie from the pit of hell? Look at verse 3. Ready? Read this with me again. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Does anybody know what a, a cow puncher is? That's what they used to call cowboys that were really, really dumb. Has anybody ever punched a cow? (laughs) Nobody? I worked on a dairy. I punched a cow once. Can I tell you that experience? The cow was being ornery, and I had to move the cow, and so I punched the cow, 
and I almost broke my hand. And you know what the cow did? Nothing. Why? Cow don't care. Cows are tough, right? Tough. This is what happens. The dumbest animals on the planet, an ox and a donkey, even they know that their master feeds them and that their manager has a manger (laughs) for them. Does that make sense? The dumbest animals on planet Earth know where food is and home is. Yes? What's God saying to his people through Isaiah? Yeah, you're dumber than a donkey. That's what he's saying. Why? Because what do we do? What do we do? Right? We refuse to go to God even for our most basic needs. We're determined to live as orphans. Why? Notice that Isaiah isn't saying the problem is with your politicians. Remember the politicians? Bad, 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 good. Isaiah's, and God isn't saying that. What is he saying? It's you. It's easy to blame everybody else in your life, circumstances, people, things. It's easy to blame them for where you are. It's not. An orphan and a rebel distrust God, and and they have one primary tool in their life. It's called complaining or complaint. Another synonym for this word would be resentment. Resentment is, is one of the core fundamental ways that us human beings operate, and we have to we have to you have to understand this. An orphan complains or has resentment because they can always point out how they're not getting enough, that that they have less than what they should have, that they will believe, God, you're not going to provide for me. I'm all alone. So why why are you so stingy, God? And then we have to do it by ourselves. And it's never in every area of your life. It's usually just in one or two places in your life. You don't live like an orphan with your family, but maybe with your finances you do. You don't live like an orphan with your finances, but maybe when it comes to whether or not God's going to take care of your kids. You don't live like an orphan when it comes to how your work life is, but your home life, you feel like you never have enough love. Maybe you're great in your marriage, but in your work, you always feel inadequate and like God isn't really going to provide for you, and you constantly have to prove yourself. Does that make sense? It's getting uncomfortable in here this morning. It's almost like we're preaching out of the prophets. When hardship and sorrow come, do you find yourself reciting the narrative that this must be evidence of God's apathy or indifference? That's not not lament. That's the self-talk of a rebel. At the core of all complaint, next slide, at the core of all complaint is an accusation against God or others. Oh, can you take down the image? Thank you. Sorry, that was my fault. That you're not getting what you think you deserve. 
You know, if you really want to connect with someone who is in deep, deep resentment about their life and about what's happening with them, because you ever you have those people in your life? They have a lot of resentment in their life, right? They're struggling. They're not a positive person. The complaining and the resentment is always coming out of them. They're talking about everything that's wrong all the time. You know what you can say to them? You have every right to be resentful. Every right. Because there is a person who's wrecked your life. And it's you. This is what prophets do. And I'm here today to tell you that hard news. Because I can't do anything about anybody else, and neither can you, but you can do something about your own heart. William Kirkpatrick, he's a professor at Boston College. He tells a story about how he once asked members of his philosophy class to write an anonymous essay anonymous, about a personal struggle over right or wrong or good or evil. Most of the students, however, were unable to complete the assignment. And he asked them why. And they said, well, I haven't done anything wrong. (laughs) He wrote a New York Times article about it, and he said this. He concluded, we can see a lot of self-esteem here, but little (laughs) self-awareness. And that's how a rebel or, a, or an orphan thinks. I haven't done anything wrong. And therefore, God and other people must be to blame. That's what a complaint or complaining or resentment looks like. Contrast the self-talk of a rebel and an orphan with the self-talk of someone who is a beloved child of the King of Kings. It's not complaint. You know what it is? is gratitude. Gratitude is the core belief that my life is good, not because primarily of me, but because there's God who's outside of me is good and absolutely loves me. Does that make sense? Grateful people love it when other people succeed because they rejoice that God is blessing them. An orphan says, how come I'm not getting what they have? Grateful people give thanks for what they receive because they realize, God, you're looking out for me. An orphan says, is this it? I wanted more. Grateful people look for opportunities to serve because they are resting and abiding in the truth that the God of the universe is serving them already. An orphan says, what's in it for me? Grateful people even are grateful when they suffer. Not for the suffering itself. That just stinks. We're all on the same page there, yeah? Yeah? Yeah. But they're grateful that their Heavenly Father is profoundly present with them in their pain. Orphans say, I must be all alone. Gratitude is the self-talk and the prayers of what it means to be a beloved child of the King of Kings. So Isaiah asks you an important question. Are you ready? Would you be willing to look at the part of you that's still living as an orphan that is more stubborn than a hee-haw? 
Seven said yes. That's good. That's good. That's a high percentage. Would you? All right, then. Some of you didn't answer. I appreciate your honesty. Here's why this is significant for Israel. If they don't, things are going to fall apart. They didn't. What happened? Things fell apart. This is why God wants you to understand what's going on in your own heart, and that is to deliver you from the hell that you're currently living in. Your whole life isn't hell, but there's a little pocket, yeah? And he wants to deal with that. And maybe right now there feels like more of your life is hell than heaven, and God wants to deal with that. Wherever you are, it doesn't matter. God wants to bring heaven into your life. He wants to help you to stop eating from that, that dumpster of death and come dine at this beautiful new table called the banquet of heaven. He wants to move you from resentment and anger and lust and bitterness and selfishness and self-centeredness into a life of joy and hope and forgiveness and faith. Does that make sense? Okay. How does God move you from here to here? You know what he asks you to do? It's a horrible word. Obey. You know why? Because God doesn't necessarily need you to fully understand every single little thing before you just say, you know what? I'm going to put down the dumpster food and go to the banquet. Yeah? Do you need to be an expert at microbiology and epidemiology to put down the rotten food? No. What do you need to do? Just put it down and start eating the good stuff. Yes? Yes. Yes. Raymond C. Ortland in his commentary on Isaiah says this, conviction of sin is a health-giving and injury. Conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit being kind to us by confronting us with the light we don't want to see and the truth we're afraid to admit and the guilt we prefer to ignore. Conviction of sin is the merciful God declaring war on the false peace we settle for. And the first five chapters of Isaiah is God giving an accurate diagnosis to our hearts and to Israel's hearts. And then in chapter six, everything changes because Isaiah has seen something that he's never seen before. Are you ready? So let's pretend, let's pretend we've, we've actually heard what God is saying. I don't want to be stubborn like an ox or a donkey. God, I want you to change my heart. I see that I'm the problem and that I need to deal with me. Yes? Yes. Chapter 6, verse 1. Are you ready? You might have read this before. Let's read this. In the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, so President Biden has died, right? Some of you are rejoicing. Some of you are not. Isn't that wonderful? I love it that we have such a diverse crowd. It's fantastic. Okay, and Isaiah goes to church, and what's it, what does he see? Read it with me again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on So the man who was sitting on the throne died, and who's on the throne? Can I just say this? 
That whatever crazy things are happening in this country, whatever crazy things are happening in your life right now, there is one person seated on the throne in your life, and his name is Jesus, and he is ruling, and he is reigning, and he's enough for you. Yeah? Yeah. Amen. God is the sovereign king. He knows what he's doing. And I complain and rail and get angry with God all the time. I say things like this, what are you doing? How come you're not doing this? What's going on? And I have to get it out. Why? So that I can come to a place of surrender and trust. King Uzziah is dead, but Isaiah sees the true king of Israel seated on the throne high and lifted up. God is in charge and he's good. Let's keep on reading what Isaiah says. sees. Verse two, ready? Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. Okay, these are not chubby, cute, fat, little angel babies. Okay? Seraphim and cherubim, these are, um, they're, they're, they're literally, one of the translation of the name of their, uh, or one, in the Hebrew, seraphim can mean burning ones. So I want you to, to think of nuclear supernovas of light. And there's thousands of them. According to John's vision in the book of Revelation, there's thousands of them flying around God. And what do they have? They have two wings that cover their faces, two they cover their feet, and two they're flying. So these very strange looking balls of incredible light and energy. And what are they singing? What are they worshiping? Verse three. And they're calling to one another. Let's read this with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Read it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Again, louder. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is on the throne of your life everywhere right now. Read it with me loud. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. They don't have bold and underline in Hebrew. They have to repeat a word. If they want a word, make way a thousand pounds, you say three times. He's holy, he's holy, he's holy. He's high, he's distinct, he's separate. He's different than you think he is. You know what that means? His goodness is greater than any goodness you've ever known. His love is larger and more immense and more spectacular than any love you've ever known. His mercy is more exquisite and beautiful and achingly gorgeous than you've ever known. Every single definition that you have of what God is like is bigger and grander in reality. God is holy. And he's reigning and he's ruling. Even when everything feels like it's falling apart. God is not mean or cruel or apathetic. God is present and ruling and reigning and holy. Let's keep on reading together. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. That's the weight of God's presence, the glory of God. 
The presence of the Holy Spirit shakes and acts when the Holy Spirit came into first they would their church would pray and, and their buildings would shake. When you experience the weight of God's glory and presence in your life, you don't stay still. Something moves in you, shakes in you. And what's Isaiah's response? What's it like for Isaiah to see all this? Is it joy? Is it fear? Astonishment? Let's, what does he say? Woe to me. Oh, oh dang. Now, now, notice first that he doesn't say woe is me, but woe to me. Isaiah, in an instant, realized that he's understood God all wrong. That's a serious professional mistake. Because what's the consequences if Isaiah the prophet gets things wrong? Yeah, he dies. Yeah. That's a job with some serious upside, but your reviews are tough, right? You don't want to go into HR because they have knives, right? A prophet is supposed to understand God, hear from God, speaks what God speaks, and Isaiah realizes, oh my gosh, I have to go back to school. I don't know. I've never fully understand who God really is. What does he say? Woe to me, I cried. What does he say next? I am ruined. Oh, yeah, professionally. Spiritually, I've seen God. I used to think God was this big. God is huge. I used to fit God into my life. Now I'm realizing, uh, no. I'm supposed to fit into God's life. I used to obey when I wanted, when I thought it was nice, when it was convenient. I would entertain rebellion whenever, whatever. It's okay. It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't really matter. I'm all alone. I'm not really hurting anybody. And when you see God, what do you think? Woe to me. I'm ruined. Oh, 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 I've seriously misunderstood things. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Yeah. What comes out of Isaiah's lips originates where? In his heart. What's unclean in Isaiah? His heart. His heart doesn't understand who God is. His heart thinks that God is small. Or that God doesn't care, or that God is unable or unwilling. Those are lies from the pit of hell. And he cannot fix his heart or make up for the awful things that he's done and said. And worse yet, Isaiah is a man of unclean lips, and he's living among a people of you know all those dirty, rotten scoundrels in the state of California? You know? You know those people? Yeah, that's us. Yeah. Yeah. Years after the death of President Calvin Coolidge, anybody know what this guy looks like? 
You'd recognize that as President Calvin Coolidge if you saw him walking down the street, right? <laughs> President Calvin Coolidge, the story came out. In the early days of his presidency, Coolidge awoke one morning in his hotel room to find a burglar going through his pockets. Can you imagine? Just a petty theft, right? Someone got in the hotel room, secret security was... Secret security... or Secret service was asleep on the job, something like that. And this kid is going through his pockets, college student. Coolidge opens his eyes, looks at the kid, and realizes there's a guy, there's a couple guys in the room next door that could come through and just shoot the kid dead at any moment. And Coolidge spoke, speaks up and he says, <clears throat> you can have the money, but just don't take my watch. That was a gift from my wife. And then the thief's like, say what? And then he said, why are you taking the money? And the kid was like, well, I don't have enough money for, for, for school. And Coolidge says, okay, well, that's fine. Well, can I, can I give you the money that you need and you can pay me back? And the kid's like, uh, okay. And then awareness started dawning on the kid of who he was actually robbing. And he began to become terrified because this guy realized I'm robbing the President of the United States of America. Coolidge counted out $32 in his wallet, handed the kid, which is train fare and whatever he needed in order to go to school. And uh, Coolidge said, now I want you to exit out this door because the Secret Service is behind this door and they'll kill you if they find you here. <laughs> and so the kid left, paid back every single dollar that he borrowed from Calvert Coolidge. Why? Woe to me. I didn't realize what I was doing. I didn't realize where I was. I didn't realize who God was and what he was like and what it was like to live under his rule and reign. And now I figured it out and woe to me. One instant of seeing God Almighty, this is all Isaiah needs for his self-diagnosis. He's far more broken than he cares to admit because that's the first half of the gospel. You're far more broken than you want to admit, but you're far more loved than you could ever dare to hope because of what Jesus has done for you. This is the good news. But we have to deal with the hard news first. That's what Isaiah says. And he admits it out loud in church because that's where he is. He's in church, and as he's worshiping in church, the president has just died. He sees God, and he goes, Oh my gosh, woe to me. Watch what happens next. Verse six, ready? Read this with me. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. That'd be a unique church service, <laughs> right? Everybody line up. Here's a coal, right? Just here, bite down on this stick, right? What's on the altar? Yeah, sacrifice. Think about it. Isaiah is at the temple. What's on the altar? What are the shepherds in Bethlehem tending? Sheep. What's on the altar? A lamb. Why? Because a lamb has been slain. Why? Because that's what Israel did. Israel placed their hands on the lamb and said, God, I know that this 
four-legged woolly quadruped, when it dies, it's a symbol that all of my death is going to be transferred to this animal. Israel was a nation, a nation defined by the blood of the lamb being their redemption. What what does the angel do? Verse 7, with it, he touched my mouth. Ah, but I mean, it's a giant, huge, 40-foot tall supernova of light coming at you, right, whose voice literally is shaking the temple. I mean, I'm sure Isaiah is just like, okay, I'm dead. I'm dead, 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 okay? And the coal touches his mouth. He doesn't say it's painful, but I'm imagining it's probably a little bit uncomfortable. And what does the angel say? Read it with me loud. See, wait, wait, go, go back one. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Why is Isaiah's sin atoned for? How is his guilt taken away? It's by the blood of a lamb. It's by the blood of a lamb. What they said, what Israel said this, next slide, Israel would say this, God, I'm far more broken than I want to admit. Only you can forgive me. I know my sin leads leads to death. I know living like an orphan and a rebel leads to my death. Take this lamb in my place. That's what the people of Israel said. And when the lamb died on the fire, so the sins died with the person. The The person's sins died too. The coal reminds Isaiah that another has taken Isaiah's place. Another had to suffer in order to make him clean and whole. Another had to die in order for Isaiah to be forgiven his debt paid for. That's literally what atoned means, paid for. Put it all together for Isaiah, but also for you. Can you see the gospel for your own heart in this passage? Yeah? When I can see God clearly, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ, in the moment that I can freely confess that I am ruined without him, that's the moment that my sins are atoned for. Oh, somebody give me an amen. Jesus dies in my place. He's the one condemned for me. Can you see it? Okay, let me back up for a moment to zoom out just for a second. Because Isaiah sees God, and it's absolutely awesome, and it's absolutely shocking. But we always focus on this image of God, and we think it's absolutely astounding. But I want to point out something really important, too. Here it is. Ready? God sees Isaiah. God knows exactly Isaiah's foolishness and how Isaiah lives like a rebel and an orphan. And how does God treat Isaiah? Yeah. Loves him. Absolutely. Merciful, kind, overwhelming. God forgives him. God atones for his sin. God is gentle and kind to Isaiah. God is going to give Isaiah an incredible purpose and mission to live. He's going to treat Isaiah, the orphan and rebel, with love and mercy and forgiveness. God sees you and treats you the exact same way. I have a question for you. 
How do you treat the part of you that rebels? If this is how God treats you with love and mercy, with kindness, how do you treat you, the part of you that rebels? <clears throat> okay, Tim's good at denial. That's a river in Egypt, right? Lori uses a hammer. Does anybody else use a hammer or a tongue? Did anybody else ever experience a moment where you just hate the part of you that rebels? You hate the part of you that complains. You say, I wish this was gone, and you throttle that part of you. Is that how God treats you? No. No. Never. Never. I have struggled with years, years and years of my life, decades. Like, I'm not talking like, oh, I got over this in 1991. I'm dealing with this right now. But still to this day, still to this day, when I mess up, when I fail, my first instinct is to beat myself up. Man, that's not how God treats me. Why do I do that to myself? It's habit, it's practice. But at the end of the day, you know what it is? It's my belief that God is somehow thoroughly disappointed and angry in me, frustrated with me, irritated with me. Here's the point. I treat the broken part of my own heart like the same way that a slave master abuses a slave, which means that there's two parts of me and you that needs to be redeemed. The part of you that rebels and the part of you that hates the part of you that rebels. Does that make sense? Both need to be redeemed. Both need to be healed. When you apply the gospel to the part of your heart which messes up and also to the part of your heart that beats yourself up, it changes you. You know what you become like? A seraphim. You start to burn with fire for God. You start to praise God with your whole life. You start to honor God with your whole life. That's what happens. Prayer isn't just like, oh, I hope this makes it through the ceiling. It turns into a passionate conversation with God. St. Augustine, the greatest pastor and church leader after the Apostle Paul, writes of this fire and passion we experience when God changes us with the good news of the gospel, that we're more broken than we want to admit, but that someone has died in our place and his name is Jesus, and we are more profoundly loved than we could ever dare hope. And this is what Augustine writes. Give me a man, give me a woman who's absolutely in love, and he knows what I mean. Give me the one who yearns. Give me the one who is hungry. Give me the one far away in this desert who is thirsty and sighs for the spring of the eternal country. Give me that sort of man who knows what I mean. But if I speak to a cold man, he just does not know what I'm talking about. Do you love God? Do you hunger for him? Are you thirsty for him? Does your heart burn with desire to see his kingdom come and his will done? Not so that you can fit him into a part of your life, but that you can take your whole life and put it in his capable hands and say, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. Do you have that in you? And if you don't, do you want it? Then let's pray.
holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. You are more than I could ever want or dream or hope or imagine. You are bigger and grander and more beautiful than I could ever want or hope or imagine. And I'm asking right now, Jesus, we are asking you right now to create in us that passion and desire and urgency for our whole lives to be yours. That prayer and worship would come alive. Lord, cleanse our unclean lips and our unbelieving hearts and the part of us that still beats ourselves up when we make mistakes. God, help. And we know that we can't do this on our own. We have to come before you, Jesus, and say, this is your work to do in our spirit. This is our desire, but it's your work to get it done. And so we ask now as we take communion, Lord Jesus, that you would transform our hearts. And all God's people say it. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took sourdough bread from Grover Beach sourdough <laughs> laced with rosemary and Asiago cheese. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same manner after supper, he took the cup and he lifted it up. That, that promise that God would redeem his people with an outstretched hand and a mighty act of judgment. And he said, now the judgment is on me. This cup, this promise is in my blood. So whenever you eat of this and drink of this, Remember me until I come again. As the body of Christ, what we do now is we are going to take with the tongs provided a piece of this gorgeous focaccia bread that has all the gluten in it and also a cup. And we're going to worship at the same time. So this section, you're going to pass through over here. Deacons are going to speak the truth of the gospel over you. This section here, you're going to pass by over here. And we're going to eat together the body of Christ. Amen? Pastor Andy Rock is the senior pastor of Coastal Community Church. It's located in Grover Beach, California, and serves communities across the Central Coast. Join us online each week on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. for our weekly live stream. We also have two in-person services at 9 a.m. and 1040 a.m. in our sanctuary. Coastal Community Church is located at 1830 Farrell Road, Grover Beach, California. For more information, visit our website, www.mycoastal.org. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you have a great week.